All right, good job, girls. I think we take for granted many times how it's not as easy to stand up in front of all of you the way it might look by the professionals. So nice job, girls, and uh, encouragement on the clapping as well. That could be a little more lively and exciting. Uh, so let's try that next time. Colossians 2, Colossians chapter 2. They let me up here every once in a while. They probably regret it after it's done. Colossians chapter 2, our scripture reading for today before Pastor Nate comes to share God's word. I'll be reading verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I do want to encourage you to persevere and bear up under much persecution that you have in this room with the temperature. We know that throughout the history of the church, we've been riddled with much persecution, and this hot weather is just right up at the top of that list. Um, no, actually, what I'm thinking about is the fact that this building is nearly, or actually right around 100 years old, the part that we're sitting in here. And for most of that time, Hundreds of people sat in here with no air conditioning. Can you imagine that? No air conditioning, so to speak, as we're used to it today. And so as you're sitting there today and you're perhaps a little bit uncomfortable by the temperature, think of it as an experience to join with the church of old. Just like we sing some of the songs that they sang, experience some of the things that they experienced. Oftentimes I sit in here, I stand in here throughout the week and I think, wow, I would love to go to a service 100 years ago and and see what it would be like to be with them. Well, you get a little taste of that today with just some of the warm weather in the middle of the summer. It's a little toasty, but folks, I think we can endure for just a few minutes as we look into God's Word this morning. This past week, uh, my family and I were home in uh, Minnesota uh, visiting my family and visiting Callie's family. And 4th of July is usually a time uh, historically in our family where we would, we would go to a place called Valley Fair. Now, if you're familiar with Cedar Point, it's the same kind of thing. In fact, I think they might be owned by the same company. Um, but Valley Fair, of course, full of rides. 4th of July, you know, one of the hottest times of the year, especially in Minnesota. Um, so we go here, you roast all day, you get lots of sunburn, you pay an outrageous amount of money for food and to get into the place, you ride a bunch of rides that make you sick, and then you leave. So it's a great day. And we haven't done this for many years, but I, I absolutely loved it as a kid. And I don't know why, because I was scared of a lot of the rides, and my older brothers would just make me go on them because nobody wanted to stay with me and go on the boring rides. 
But occasionally I get to go with my dad, and one of my favorite rides to go on with my dad was the old cars. Now, maybe you've gone to one of these theme parks uh, where they set up like a little track that goes around in kind of a loop, and it, it's a little bit of a scenic path uh, that has a track that they put Model Ts on. And you get in these Model Ts, or maybe there are other old cars. Uh, my dad would know. He's a real car guy. Um, but we would ride in these rides, and the cool part is that you got to drive a car as a kid. Now, you have to understand, of course, you get to use a steering wheel, but the tires have to stay on this track, so you've got like six inches on both sides that you can actually steer and just kind of run into the middle track that keeps you on the path you're supposed to go. So not a lot of control there. And second of all, you've got to push down the gas pedal. Now, I don't know if this is how it was in all old cars or if this was just the exhibit, but those pedals are impossible to push down when you're like five or six years old. Uh, they're not forward like you would expect to give you some force to push back on. They're like straight down on the floor. So you're trying to push all of your foot weight on this pedal and try to steer this thing and keep it on the track that it's going on. But as a five or six-year-old, I really loved doing this because it, it felt like you had some freedom, some control in life. You know, it's a real fun ride. Let's just keep going on this, Dad. And my dad didn't have a lot of prospects for what rides he wanted to go on, so he didn't mind uh, entertaining me by going on this. But as a five- or six-year-old, like I said, I couldn't push down the gas pedal. So basically, after uh, a few attempts every time where I'd try to do it, my leg would get totally tired. Um, my dad didn't want all the people behind us to just have to stop. So he would just push down the pedal, and I would steer, which, of course, was no control at all. But I felt like I was in control. You know, when we think about our salvation and our sanctification, the way that God changes our lives, we often become prideful and we think that we really have something to do with it. and We forget that Christ has all the power that supplies the salvation that we have. We feel like we might be in control, we feel like we might be really good people, and yet we forget that all of the power, all of the righteousness that's infused upon us, that's credited to us, all comes from Christ. And when we're studying the book of Colossians like we have been going week by week through these passages, uh, we recognize that Christ is over all. And two weeks ago, we looked at verses 8 through 10 where Paul warns the Colossians not to be carried away captive by human wisdom. These worldviews are hollow and deceitful because they promise things that they can't deliver. They originate in man and are limited to what you can see and experience. So they offer no truth concerning the world that is to come. And in fact, they don't present an accurate picture of the world that we live in now. And instead, Paul encourages the Colossians and us to embrace the worldview presented by Christ in his word. Christ is over the entire material universe that he has created we are fulfilled in him alone. And I want us to notice at the end of that passage a couple weeks ago, verse 10 says this, that we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now that's where we ended that message, but that's not where Paul is done with his message. What we're looking at today is just a continuation. I would say Paul would maybe be a little ticked off that we stopped there and didn't get the rest of what he was saying in these verses today. How have we been filled in Christ? In what way is Christ the head of all rule and authority? These are questions that he's going to answer in verses 11 to 15. 
Now, I mentioned several times a couple weeks ago that we don't know exactly the specifics about the false teaching that has been going around in the city of Colossae. But it probably had something to do with Christ alone not being sufficient to deal with either their salvation or their daily Christian living. Paul argues in our text today that Christ conquers completely. He conquers our rebellious hearts and he conquers all hierarchies of the world. So first of all, I want us to look at verses 11 to 14. We're going to talk about him conquering our rebellious hearts before we move on to Christ conquering the ruling hierarchy, which he does in verse 15. So as uh, as we asked after reading verse 10, how have we been filled in him? How has Christ filled us? Because that's what he finished with in verse 10. Paul answers in verses 11 to 14, that Christ conquers our rebellious hearts. This is the means by which Christ fills us. He conquers us. We're going to see in these verses that when Christ fills us, he brings complete fulfillment to our lives. You know, it's not just a subtle change in our perspective of life or something that we just add to our life to make us look at it a little bit differently when we receive Christ. No, Christ completely changes us from the inside out. And it's not as though we were looking for God to save us. He pursued us in our state of rebellion against him, and he accomplished our salvation for, for us in full. So if you're looking at this passage from a bird's eye view, you may be wondering why Paul pursues this question. Why focus on Christ's filling of us in a letter that is so dominated by warnings of false teaching? I believe it's important for us to know why we should pursue this. Paul is making it clear in this passage that if we understand how Christ has so conquered our hearts and stripped us of our old life, we will recognize that we do not have to be dominated by the sins that seem so easily to beset us. We don't have to wonder whether Christ really is enough for us to live a life that is pleasing to God. We don't have to be concerned that we're missing out on some key component to our lives that will bring us ultimate joy and satisfaction. And so Paul uses four pictures in these verses that describe how Christ has conquered us and conquered our rebellious hearts and made it possible for us to live in such a way that we glorify God. So let's start by looking at the first picture in verse 11. Paul writes this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now there's a recurring theme in this passage in which Paul repeatedly uses the words in him to remind the Colossians and us of all the things that have happened as a result of Christ's work. It's not Christ and something or and some, someone else. It's Christ alone. And also Paul wants us to see the tremendous benefits that we have reaped as a result of our union with Christ. In him you have become this. Because of him this has happened to you. And so he begins our passage. 
In Christ, the Colossians have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, circumcision was a big deal to the Jews because it was a sign of the covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. Every Jewish male was to be circumcised to identify the relationship that he had with God through the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus fulfilled that covenant when he came, and now Christians are no longer obligated to keep that old covenant. But even in the Old Testament, we see that God was not as interested in them keeping the law by physical circumcision as he was in them being spiritually transformed and having a real relationship with God. In fact, Jeremiah speaks continually of the need to be given a new heart that lives in a relationship with God that is much deeper than merely keeping external standards like circumcision. And so while some people we see throughout the New Testament are urging believers to continue the right of circumcision, we don't see that command as authoritative in the New Testament. Instead, here we see Paul talking about a circumcision made without hands. Now that phrase, made without hands, means that it's something that isn't done by humans. It's not something that you can accomplish by yourself. You may be able to physically circumcise yourself, but you can't accomplish this kind of circumcision to yourself. It's a circumcision that only God can do. And it's not performed on your physical body. This is a spiritual circumcision of the heart. I believe this is what the Old Testament prophets, specifically Jeremiah, referred to several times. We exist with cold, dead hearts toward God, and we need him to give us new hearts of flesh that are alive and responsive toward him. Now, in the New Testament, this is usually referred to as regeneration. God takes something dead, and he makes it alive. Now, I will confess that this next phrase is a little bit more difficult to interpret. Like a few weeks ago, I spent a lot of time studying this, trying to determine, based on the context, what is it that Paul is trying to say when he uses these words? Paul is telling us how or what is going on at the time of our heart circumcision when he says, by putting off the body of the flesh. Now, if you read Paul at all, you'll see that he uses that word flesh in a few different ways throughout the New Testament. And he also uses the phrase body of flesh in different ways. He can either mean your physical flesh or your sin nature or something like either one of those. And to complicate things a little bit more, the next phrase after that, by the circumcision of Christ, could mean either the circumcision done to Christ or the circumcision that Christ does, meaning the circumcision done by Christ. So you say, how do we know? Well, first of all, because of this, there are two main ways that these phrases are interpreted together. So try to follow with me. Again, I know it's a little bit warm, but this will help us understand what Paul is saying here. Either Paul could mean that Christ himself was circumcised in a way when he died on the cross and his flesh was stripped from his body, or, well, I'll say this. 
If this is what Paul means, he is connecting the death of Christ to our heart circumcision, meaning that we are given new life through Christ's death. This is possible, and I'll admit, if, if this is what Paul means, uh, I've certainly went back and forth on whether I believe that was exactly what Paul was saying here. But I think it's actually more likely that when he refers to the body of flesh, he's talking about our sin nature. And the circumcision of Christ is the heart circumcision that Christ performs on us. And I believe that this is the case because there are such close parallels in this passage to Romans chapter 6. In fact, I'd like us all to to read part of that passage. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6, we're just going to look at verses 3 to 7. But I believe as you read this passage, you will see, as as I've been studying Colossians chapter 2, the strong connections, the strong parallels that Paul makes in these two passages that really swung my interpretation of this to what Paul is clearly saying in Romans chapter 6. So starting in verse 3, Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, notice this folks, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Folks, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin is the sin nature that lives in all of us. We are born with it, and it dominates us and makes us its slave. When we are united with Christ, our old self, and that's the person who we used to be, that person is crucified And our sin nature is not completely destroyed, but it is stripped of its dominating power in our lives. We no longer need to obey it. We can, by the power of the Spirit living within us, resist its sway in our life and serve righteousness instead of our sin. See, folks, the the person that we used to be has been crucified. Our old self is gone. But the sin nature that lives in us is still there, But it says in Romans chapter 6 that the power, that dominating power that it used to have in our life is stripped away. We no longer are forced to obey its commands. We're free to serve Christ instead. We're free to live in righteousness. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2 verse 11. Christ putting off the body of the flesh is his removing the sin nature of its dominating power in our lives. As physical circumcision strips away part of the flesh, so the spiritual circumcision of the heart strips away the dominating rule of the sin nature in our lives. We no longer have to serve the flesh. We're free to serve Christ. Now, no doubt there are some people in this room who came to this service this morning feeling defeated because of some sin that has crept into your life and dominated you. 
You began flirting with finding satisfaction in what other people think of you, and now you're at the complete mercy of your reputation. You started viewing pornography out of curiosity, and now you're addicted. You began drinking alcohol to help you deal with stress in your life, and now you turn to it regularly to help you get through the day. There are countless ways that we submit ourselves to the ruling authority of our sin nature and our flesh bents, but this passage reminds us that we don't have to. In salvation, Jesus Christ has circumcised our hearts by stripping away the ruling power of the sin nature in our lives. We don't have to bow the knee to our flesh We have the power through the Holy Spirit who lives in us to turn from our sins and to submit to living in righteousness instead. You see, folks, we can meditate on what God has done for us and recognize that our standing in Christ is far more important than our standing in the eyes of our friends and our coworkers. We can learn to recognize when we are most tempted and create a game plan that helps us flee when we are tempted to sin with our eyes and with our minds. We can memorize scripture that reminds us that God is our refuge and strength, not any physical substance that we might be tempted to rely on. So Christ conquers our rebellious hearts through a spiritual circumcision that strips away the power of our sin nature. He also conquers our rebellious hearts through baptism. That's the second picture that Paul uses in this passage. Let's look at verse 12. He says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, any time that we see baptism in the New Testament, it's good to try to determine by the context whether the writer is talking about spirit baptism or water baptism. But I don't fret too hard when we aren't sure, uh, because after all, our water baptism is a picture of our spirit baptism. So it's not like these are totally different concepts. One is picturing the other. It's very likely he could be referring to both at the same time in some circumstances. Spirit baptism is when the Holy Spirit baptizes someone into the body of Christ and unites that person with Christ himself. It occurs at the time of our salvation. So every believer has experienced spirit baptism. Now water baptism is the external ordinance of the church where a person confesses that he has experienced inwardly the spirit baptism that has already happened in his life. Well, here it appears to me that Paul is talking about spirit baptism because he indicates that this baptism occurs simultaneously with the circumcision of verse 11. Christ heart circumcised you when you were buried with him in baptism. So at the same time that Christ gave you a new heart, you were buried with him in baptism. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, I believe this is a key picture in the New Testament because burial communicates the certainty of death. We don't bury people if we're not quite sure that they're dead yet, unless we want to make sure that they are. (laughs) 
Our burial with Christ shows that our old self, the person that we used to be before we were united to Christ, is dead and gone. That person no longer exists. The old person was a slave to sin and thoroughly depraved. Now, Paul says that in our, bapti- in our baptism, we were also raised with him. Now, most of the time in the New Testament, it refers to our resurrection as a future occurrence, a future event. It's a time when we will be raised in the last day, body and soul, to live forever with Christ. But here Paul talks about our resurrection like he does at the beginning of verse, uh, Romans chapter 6. Just as Christ was raised, so we too were raised to walk in newness of life. You see, we love the picture of water baptism because it so beautifully portrays what Christ has accomplished in us. He unites us to himself as we are buried with him, cutting us off from our old self and our pattern of existence. Then God raises us with Christ to live a totally new kind of life as we submit to live by the Spirit instead of our fleshly desires. We are no longer under the dominion of our sin because that old person has died. Now at the end of verse 12, Paul reminds us of the one necessary condition for our union with Christ in his baptism and resurrection. Faith. Faith in the God who powerfully worked to raise Jesus from the dead. Faith in the God who powerfully works to raise sinners from the dead as they are united with Christ. And you may be here today and you've never placed your faith in God to save you. Sure, you may have grown up going to church, memorizing the Bible, going to Sunday school, You may have heard the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for you. You may have gone through the motions of singing. You may even be a giver. But if you've never placed your faith in the God who powerfully worked to raise Jesus from the dead, if you've never trusted him alone with your eternal destiny, then you're lost. There's no spiritual life in your heart. You're like many of the Jews in the nation of Israel who had been physically circumcised but who had never experienced a heart circumcision, a heart transformation. You've never been baptized by the Spirit of God into the church or united with Christ. I'm just going to be honest, this is terrible news for you. But there's also really good news for you. There's wonderful news because if you today will turn from your sin and believe in Jesus alone to save you, he promises that he will do just that. He will save you. He will give you a new heart and his spirit will baptize you, uniting you with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. You will be raised with Christ to live a totally different, a totally new kind of life. And as we said in the future, in that last day, you will be raised body and soul to live forever with Christ. It's a wonderful truth, folks, but it's only by faith in what God has done for you. 
Friend, today you can be saved if you repent and believe. Christ conquers our hearts through spiritual circumcision, through spirit baptism, and through a supernatural resurrection. Now this third point flows out of the second point. As you know, we've been talking about resurrection. It also flows out of the end of verse 12 into verse 13. Verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I think it's important that we recognize that the verbs in this passage have all been passive. Did you notice that? We were circumcised. We were buried. We were raised. All of these things had to be done to us because of the negative state that is universal in the human race at birth. What state is that? Paul says that we were dead. Folks, dead people don't circumcise themselves. Dead people don't bury themselves. And dead people most certainly do not raise themselves from the dead. God needed to do all these things for us because we were utterly helpless. Paul describes us as dead in our trespasses, in our transgressions, and the uncircumcision of our flesh. You see, folks, spiritual uncircumcision is our natural state. In this condition, the sin nature rules supremely in our hearts and demands that we obey its every command. We have no choice in the matter because we are spiritually dead. Our life is dominated by trespassing God's laws and rebelling against his will. And it's in this state of rebellion against God that he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us from the dead. He gave us new life. At the same time that God was performing spiritual circumcision on us and baptizing us into Christ, he brought us from death to life. I believe this is a key truth that informs the way that we live, folks. When we remember that we were spiritually dead, and unable to bring ourselves to life, God took the initiative and made us alive. This truth grounds us when we're tempted to become proud and think that we have become something really significant in our own eyes. When we realize that God had to do everything to save us because we could do nothing, It strips us of our feelings of prideful self-achievement. We aren't any better than anybody else because we're recipients of marvelous grace. This truth encourages us when we're tempted to despair that we will never convince anyone to become a Christian. When we think that we can argue someone into heaven or even love them into heaven, we forget that we are fully incapable of imparting new life to dead people. We can't bring people back from the dead. We need to be in prayer that the Holy Spirit will work in lost people's hearts and bring them new life because only God can make dead people alive. 
And yes, definitely, we share the gospel with them. We share the truth of God's word because we believe that the power is in the resurrection and in God's revelation of that resurrection to us. This truth fuels our praise when we are gathered together with the church of God. When we are tempted to believe that we have nothing for which to be thankful, this truth reminds us to be thankful that we are not dead. Not just that we're not physically dead, but much more importantly that we're not spiritually dead and still slaves to our sin nature and rebels to God's will. First Baptist, may our praises never die because we have been brought from death to life. So may our praises to God live on. Christ conquers our hearts through spiritual circumcision, through spirit baptism, through supernatural resurrection, and through substitutionary forgiveness. Let's look at the end of verses 13 and 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, at the same time that God performed all of these gracious acts on our behalf, he also forgave us our trespasses. Not just some of our trespasses, all of our trespasses. Every single act of rebellion that we did against the Most High God that merited our eternal death. We were rebels, but God forgave our rebellion. Now, how did he do this, folks? Paul says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, as far as we know, the idea of the record of debt to the Colossians in their time was some kind of an IOU. It was a recognition of debt owed to somebody else. Now, in our case, folks, if we examine our own lives and our own actions, our record is extremely long. Imagine every single sin that you've ever committed written down on a piece of paper. No, in a book. No, in an entire library. Just imagine the level of indebtedness that we have to God due to the record of sins that we have done. And then when Paul mentions legal demands, he's talking about the consequences demanded by our debts to God. There's absolutely no way that we could ever reconcile with God on our own because we are swimming in a mountain of debt and the just consequences to us are disastrous. The only suitable option appears to be our eternal death where we will work forever to try to pay off our debts, never actually making a dent in the pile. And yet Paul says that God canceled the record of our debts and the legal demands that they made on us. He absolutely wiped our slate clean. God has lifted the crushing burden of our indebtedness to him off of our shoulders and set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I would assume in this group here of people that most people in here have been indebted sometime in their life. 
Maybe it was just a small thing. Maybe it's a huge thing. Maybe some of you are suffering under heavy, crushing debt at this time. And I'm sorry about that. It's clear, though, if we really evaluate it, the greatest debt that crushes and makes that monetary, in this life, debt seem like nothing is the debt of our sins placed upon us, folks. The fact that we have broken all of God's laws over and over and over and over again. We could never have paid off our debts, and yet this awesome picture shows us that God nailed our debts to Christ as he died on the cross in our place and fully reconciled our accounts with God. Folks, do you recognize that not a single one of our debts went unpaid? Jesus paid the price for all of them. This is a substitutionary forgiveness. God forgives us of our debts because they are all paid off by Jesus on the cross. Now maybe you're here today and you're struggling with depression. How could God love me? I've done so much wrong. I've sinned far too many times. My own family won't forgive me. How could God forgive me? This passage teaches us that God loves to forgive rebels like you and me. God doesn't just forgive people who are sort of bad, but mostly good. Folks, no people like that exist. God forgives people who are spiritually dead, enemies of God, and rebels to his will. We have all amassed records of debt that are far greater than we could ever pay. But God promises that if we will admit that we are sinners, believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, and confess that Christ is Lord, he will apply his forgiveness to our account and remove the crushing weight of our debt from our backs. What an awesome thought, folks. Now, do you remember that we asked two questions at the beginning? Well, we were reading the end of verse 10. How have we been filled in him? And in what way is Christ the head of all rule and authority? Well, Paul answered in verses 11 to 14 that we were filled in him when Christ conquered our rebellious hearts. He totally stripped us of the power of our sin nature and filled us with life. So then, we still have to answer this question. How is he the head of all rule and authority? And Paul tells us here, it's because Christ conquers the ruling hierarchy. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul's warning to the Colossians not to be carried away captive by hollow and deceitful worldviews presented by false teachers. Our world is filled with people teaching views of looking at life that contradict the worldview revealed by Christ in his word. Some athletes preach that winning is everything by the way that they sacrifice their family and relationships on the altar of practice and preparation for their sport. Not all athletes, of course, but some athletes too. 
Some wealthy people preach that money is everything by the way that they cheat people and do whatever it takes to just get a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Some parents preach that worldly success is everything when they do whatever is necessary to prepare their kids to get into the right college so that they can get a successful job rather than preparing them to live for all eternity with God by discipling them at home. Christ conquers the ruling hierarchy of powers that vie for our attention. Ultimately, every human ruler and human worldview will bow the knee to Jesus and acknowledge that he alone is God. Now folks, let's look at this last verse and see precisely what Paul is saying to us here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In who? In Christ. Paul reveals three ways that Christ conquers the ruling hierarchy. First, by removing their power. Paul says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, by using those two terms, rulers and authorities, Paul includes any person who exalts himself over God and every person teaching empty and deceitful worldviews. He uses the same cognate word as he did back in verse 11 when he talks about putting off the body of the flesh. He doesn't completely destroy the rulers and authorities, but he strips them of their power so that they are unable to reign supremely. Just as Jesus stripped our sin nature of its power, its dominating rule over our hearts, so Jesus strips the rulers and authorities of their dominating authority over all things. Only Jesus has that authority. Second, Christ conquers the ruling authority and the ruling hierarchy by revealing their inferiority to himself. Notice how Paul says that he put them to open shame. Now folks, let's be clear. At the end of time, Christ will reveal how every human worldview that is opposed to the word of God is shameful and wrong. People today may look at you as crazy for allowing the Bible to contaminate your view of life, but in the end, Christ will reveal who is truly on the wrong side of history. It will be every person who rejected his gracious gospel and held to aberrant worldviews that mocked the scriptures. Christ will reveal that. There'll be no question. If today you're concerned, hold fast to what is true. Christ will reveal that truth to all. Finally, Christ conquers the ruling hierarchy by reveling in his triumph over all competitors. Now in the time of the Colossians to whom Paul is writing, they would have read a verse like verse 15 and they would have immediately recognized the illustration that Paul was making. At that time, there wasn't any social media. There was no Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or any of those. So it was a lot harder for people uh, to communicate to the world your magnificent achievements in life. Like, check out this meal that I just purchased. Uh, that's my biggest achievement. Look at this great burger that I found. Uh, so in their day... 
the way to triumph and to show their magnificent achievements uh, was this. When you conquered a rival army, you would parade your captives through the streets in a display that would put them to shame and show everyone how powerful and successful you were in battle. Right? You, you, you show all of these captives walking through the streets, perhaps stripped of their royal clothing, maybe even naked, and you're standing behind them as this triumphant and conquering warrior who has conquered all of these people. So this is a picture that, in a sense, will show at the end of time exactly what Christ is going to do. You see, Christ has conquered all of his rivals. He's demonstrated that he alone is Lord. How did he do that, folks? Only Christ can fill the human heart with joy. Nobody else can do that. Nothing else can do that. Only Christ can strip the sin nature of its power. Only Christ can unite people to God through baptism. Only Christ can make dead people alive. Only Christ can forgive people of the crushing loads of sin debt. And only Christ can triumph over every authority that competes for his glory. If you're a believer here this morning and you feel crushed by your sin, please rejoice that Christ has accomplished everything necessary for you to live for him instead of living for your sin. Christ conquers completely. He has conquered your heart and he's conquered the hierarchy of authority in this world. By his power, you are free to live in service to righteousness instead of in slavery to sin. So let me encourage you this morning. Recognize what Christ has done and claim that power in your own fight against sin today and this week. Let's pray together.